From 87 Lafayette, it's Coronapod. I'm Matt. And I'm Adam. You want to know what is a boys club, Matt? What's that? The season finale to University Challenge. Complete boys club. No girls on the stage. No charming, amazing, talented Hannah Woods to lead us. It was just four dudes on each team ask, answering, you know, random questions that uh, Jeremy Paxton answers. However, it may have all been men, but you know what? We got a hometown hero. There was a guy from Jamaica, Queens, who was basically like answering 80% of the questions for his team, and they won. So we had a New Yorker on this British quiz show who went all the way, and I feel like it has not gotten any press. That is like a hometown hero story. That's what we need in New York City right now. All right, I'm going to be honest. I do not know what University Challenge is. It's... I assume it's a quiz show because you said that it is a quiz show, but other than being a quiz show and apparently being in the UK, is there anything else I need to know about it? Um, the questions are extremely obscure, and instead of trying to answer the questions, you're often better off just trying to guess which nerd is going to answer. You know, like, you know, is, is, the, is the, like, the short guy who, like, has been historically good at movies. Like, is he going to get this movie question right? Like, that's often more fun than just trying to figure out what the answer is because, I don't know, if I showed you a map of one of the Crusades, would you know if it was the second or the seventh? (laughs) Uh, Probably not. I mean, I did watch a lot of History Channel as a kid, but I don't think my recall for the Crusades is, is particularly good. I do feel like, Adam, you are a real fount of obscure information at times. Um, (laughs) What's some obscure information that you've learned recently? Or any obscure information you'd like to share with our listeners? We did a trivia trivia at work today. Um, And the question that tripped me up was, what is the national park that is visited, has the most visitors every year? The Washington Monument. That's not a national park. What? Really? That's a national monument. Ah, but isn't it staffed by the park service? Yeah, yeah, but I said park. Okay, that has the most visitors every year? Yeah. Mm, I feel like there's a national park in New York, but it's like really small. Am I on the right track? No. Ah, all right, give me the answer. It's Great Smoky Mountains. I thought it was going to be Yosemite or something, but my team put Grand Canyon, and I was like, it's not near any population centers. That can't be the right answer. Um, So that was a good trivia question. And then, um, yeah, that's the best trivia question, honestly. I like the idea of thinking about parks in a time like this. Yeah. Tell, you know, I have not been to a park in New York in so long now. I mean... The parks are normally such a big part of my life because I'm running, I'm biking in the park all the time. I haven't been to Prospect Park now in like a month and a half. That's probably the longest period I've gone since moving to Brooklyn, certainly, without going to the park. And I think part of that is because the parks are full because Mayor Bill Idiot de Blasio won't close the streets. And now... City council members are taking it under their own wing, and they're trying to do it 
And I think that's actually a pretty good intro to our guest tonight, who's going to talk to us about land use policy, and most importantly, how the public in certain areas has influence on land use policy. So Grant Globin, you are a law student at a very prestigious university that we don't need to name. Um, but tell me, why have you, when you have this beautiful country in front of you, why have you decided to study law in a different country? Sure. Well, hi. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Excited to be here. And so I, to provide some more context, what you're referring to is some research I've been doing recently on public participation in land use planning uh, in England, which is the same system as Wales, but I focused on England. Um, and I've been comparing that to some of the institutions that we have here in the U.S., particularly in Massachusetts, just because there's been a lot of empirical work done on that. That's a useful backdrop. Um, and the reason I've been studying that is because public participation here in the U.S. is kind of broken. There's a lot that go, There's a lot that comes out of it that isn't necessarily what we'd want to see. It was designed as this way to check the unaccountable expertise of planners, but it's gone very far overboard to the point where you can't really get substantive results you want to see, um, which in the case of what I'm studying, land use is really building the necessary housing. So go back and answer your question. Why I've been studying England is because they've invented this very new system where instead of, as you would have in the U.S., People show up to some random unelected planning commission, hear about a proposal to build X number of housing units in some area, single project, single apartment building, shout about it. Um, in England, groups of people can come together to make their own land use plans with legally binding force that instead of just applying to a single project, will apply to a full neighborhood. And there's a whole legal process around this. There's certain requirements that have to be met. One of these requirements is having a certain amount of housing. Um, and so it's this very interesting theory. Uh, does it work so well in practice? It could be better. Um, but I would say it's at least uh, a source for interesting reforms we could have here. So am I understanding this correctly, that in the U.S. right now, you know, you try to get a zoning variance or something. You try to do something, you want to build a new, you know, uh, apartment building and everyone who lives around it comes out and is like, rah, 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 you can't build this here. It'll like destroy the character of the neighborhood. And you're like, I, I think I would agree with you that this is not a very effective way of creating more housing and we need more housing. So the alternative is it sounds like in an idealized state, the, the, the government says, okay, fine. You can do whatever you want in your neighborhood, but you need to tell me how you are going to allow X units of housing. And you can do whatever you want with those housing within reason. You can build one 100-story building and put all the housing in it, or you can build 50, 20-story buildings or, or whatever you want to do, like, but you have to, you have to add the housing. Is that, is that kind of like a very simple way of, of looking at it? That is the basic idea. Um problem is you can still get a lot of contestation over exactly how much housing you need. Um, you can still get too much segmentation. So there's one guy who proposes rather than even having 
government mandate anything, you should just have really small areas. So basically block by block zoning where just people on a single city block can control what goes on there and then build in a way that they get some of the benefits of development too. They basically get a financial incentive. So uh, there's some people who think that's a very promising avenue. There's some people who are more critical of that. But the idea is overall you need some method where you change what you have now, which is just a lot of incentives that align against allowing any development if you're a homeowner neighboring a proposed area. So how do you compare this to Massachusetts in terms of success, right? Like what what does that look like? Because I'm very curious, if I am a renter in a neighborhood, I am I can go to the community board meeting or whatever, and I can make my position heard, even though I don't have any like real property. So kind of in Massachusetts, where I'm sure there might be a lot of renters in some neighborhoods, and there's been no development, right? No housing units. Like what does success look like or what does failure look like? Sure. So that's an interesting question. Um, and something I'm doing right now is identifying basically five aims that you can have in these public participation laws. So I won't go through each of them, but one of them that I think is maybe easiest to understand and measure, and also maybe the one we're doing the worst at, is just how much are we building the necessary housing? Um, and if you have looked for an apartment in the Boston area, you know that it's not easy to find one for an affordable price. If you've looked for an apartment in London, you know it's not easy to find one for an affordable price. So on that metric, um, although I should say, caveat, that this neighborhood planning system is not present uniformly throughout England. Um, But on this metric, I would say both systems leave something to be desired. What is maybe better, though, is that if you think about another dimension of public participation, which is maybe how unpleasant is it to actually show up and go to this meeting and actually participate in this theoretically democratic institution, probably more present in the UK. On the other side, it takes a lot more time and effort, um, and you have to be involved for much longer in the process to actually have a meaningful say. So there are trade-offs there. And have you looked at empirical data that shows like how many people are actually being brought in to participate in these processes? Sure. So in Massachusetts, and this is why I studied Massachusetts as the case study for um, the U.S., there was a recent book that came out uh, from a trio of professors who looked at unusually detailed data on who is commenting at public meetings. And if anyone has ever been to a public meeting, you will be unsurprised to hear that the commenters were disproportionately old, disproportionately white, disproportionately homeowners, uh, disproportionately male, and overwhelmingly opposed to new development. So on that, so in the U.S., we are not representative by any stretch, at least in Massachusetts, but I think we can probably assume that that extends to other states as well based on pretty seemingly consistent anecdotal experience. Over in England, there's not such good data. We can tell that wealthier areas tend to be using this neighborhood planning process more, and 
my own observations and my own anecdotal experiences suggest that we at least have disproportionately old people attending these meetings. Mm. That said, that's just anecdote. That's not based on a wide range of observations. And we can't really go further to say, to look really into the characteristics of who is participating. Since it does require time, and since it requires showing up regularly to meetings, doing some volunteer work outside of that, you have to expect that the people who are participating are the people who have that time, who are likely not parents of young children, likely not working multiple jobs, so on. So it's interesting to me, your a student at a law student at an American university. This feels almost like a subject for an urban planning student at a British university. How, you know, explain that to me. How is this law? How is this related even to what you're learning at law school? Maybe it isn't, maybe it doesn't need to be, but I'm curious to know. Sure. So all of these things I'm talking about, are embodied in choices that legislators made when they passed certain laws. Uh, So Massachusetts, there are really three key statutes. Uh, The most important one is the zoning law, which was had the most substantial overhaul in 1975. In the UK, it's the Localism Act from 2011. So the question here then is what are the range of legal options available? And then how is law shaping what's happening on the ground? Um, So one thing I haven't mentioned that can be really important is who gets to sue if they don't don't like the outcome? And then if someone does sue, what happens? Here in the U.S., a relatively wide range of people can sue, although it's somewhat easier for homeowners than renters. If they do there's not such a big deterrent to the planning board or to the city um, because they will have counsel. They will hopefully win from their perspective in the UK. And then that will be that in England. The English rule is that the loser pays both sides, legal fees, Mm -hmm. meaning that cities in England are going to be much more scared of lawsuits because even if they um, just have a couple lawsuits where they lose, then they're going to be ha- they're going to have much bigger financial exposure. Um, but on the other hand, there's less availability of judicial review. Fewer people can actually sue, so it creates certain incentives, and that leads to, or well, I shouldn't say it leads because we haven't empirically shown that, but you might think that it would lead to certain outcomes. And my observations of meetings in both areas suggest that these are in the minds of people um, who are making decisions that these incentives that have been created. So what is, I'm curious to know, you've been to a bunch of these meetings, both in the U.S. and the U.K., it sounds like. When you think across all of the meetings you've been to, what is like the most unexpected thing that you've observed at one of these meetings where you're like, wait, what on earth just happened? Because I imagine some crazy stuff happens at these meetings. Sure, hands down. Uh, There was, I went to a Boston Planning and Development Authority meeting, uh, which is sort of the specialized planning board that is different from the rest of Massachusetts and is 
the special system for Boston. They were talking about a proposed hotel in Kenmore Square. And there was one person at the meeting who was very, very upset because they were worried that building that hotel in Kenmore Square would make Fenway Park a target for terrorism. Um, hmm. Which just was very strange to hear and try all, to hear. I will say all three of us have all lived in Boston. So I think we, we completely understand why that's kind of like a, what, why kind of thing. Cause there's a lot of other things there that theoretically would already be targets for terrorism. Yes. It'd be like saying if I build a hotel in times square, it'll be a target for terrorism because I guess nothing else before that was. Exactly. So it was rather strange. Um, and this was towards the end of a long meeting that had already gone over the time it was supposed to take. So it was just rough. So what do you, I guess, where you are now, obviously like your research isn't finished, like your, 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 your paper's not out yet, but kind of not off the record because we're on the record. Um, but, uh, anyone could find this podcast, but what do you think? Like, if you could snap your fingers and bring the, the UK policy over to the US, would that be something that you think would be net valuable? Or are you viewing this more as like a, okay, it's potentially, it's different than what we have. Maybe it's better, but like it still needs tweaks. And, you know, like the, the legislation that would be required to do this is going to be hard to pass, but maybe someday it'll happen and kind of the UK experiment will inform hopefully something better in the U S I don't think I would bring it over wholesale. What both systems are really built on is this distrust of local government, this distrust of planners and the idea that somehow they need to be disempowered. And so people who are living in an area should have the final say over every small decision. And there's a logic to that, and there's certainly an argument to that. You can argue that's what self-government means. Uh, but I think it, both systems really devalue what planners can bring and what local officials can bring to the table. And so I would hope to see a system and some legal choices that would allow that expertise to be used in a uh, more useful way and in a way that really understood what it had to bring to the table and understood what it then could learn from the public and blended them together well, rather than the mishmash that doesn't really work today. Have you, have you read Golden Gates, the book that came out in February about kind of housing policy? Um, and and it, it makes the argument, it, it tells the story essentially of like how all of these policies came out of a good place, but have been like really abused. Um, and that now they, they stop everything. And, and something interesting in it that I found was the idea that no one who a project would benefit can come speak at a community board meeting. And, and like the simplest example of this is, you know, if you build an affordable housing development in a very wealthy neighborhood where everyone's homeowners, no one who might move into that affordable housing development is ever going to be able to come to the community board meeting and advocate for themselves. And I'm kind of curious, like, in, in both way, both structures, what we have in the U.S. and some of what is happening in the U.K., 
is there any attempt to kind of solve for that? Right. Like the public input is valuable, but you are building something for people who don't exist yet in that community. So I'm about halfway through that book. It's a terrific book. The answer I would say is that neither system is trying to solve for it in term. Well, that's not entirely true. Let me take that back here in Massachusetts, certainly not trying to solve for that uh, in any formal way. Um, but it is really the fundamental tension is this gap between insiders who are already in a, a municipality who can show up to these residents um, and who under Massachusetts law actually have to get notice of certain zoning changes or special permits and people who are broadly dispersed but will see smaller but in some total greater benefits from new development. And so what's the answer to that? And the answer to that, I think, has to be law at higher levels of government. And so the English system does account for that somewhat. Each neighborhood plan has an expected housing contribution. That is set by local and national priorities and policies. Of course, those are then only as good as both the local, prior, local policies, national policies, and the ability of the people supervising these plans to make sure those are actually carried out. Uh, however, I think that's the general framework, is that nationally there is a policy of we need development, and then locally there's a policy, um, or not locally, but on the neighborhood level, there, those need to be demonstrated through the neighborhood plans. So I think that's the attempt to solve for it. I think there are certain barriers that means it doesn't always work out so well. Uh, but I think the best way to solve for it, as this suggests, is turning to the state, um, not in the U.S., but in England, turning to the national government, because you can't get people who don't live in a place to a public meeting in that place. Yeah. Well, Grant, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, I hope uh, you stay safe in this, uh, this challenging time. And if you ever want to come back on the podcast to, uh, you know, flush out some ideas that you're working on, or if you want to just, you know, wax poetic um, while you still can before you uh, work for the uh, federal judiciary and talk about how you view uh, the Fourth Amendment and, you know, uh, <laughs> searching searching cars that are being stopped at the border, we'd, uh, we'd be more than happy to have you. Uh, thank you for having me. I have not taken criminal procedure, so I have absolutely no opinion on that. Thanks, you know, Grant. Um, we haven't either, so we could, <laughs> we could, we'd all be equals. Great. Thanks very much. Have a great Thanks. night. Take care. Hey, you know, Adam, you know what I loved so much about this interview? No COVID. No COVID. Yeah. We kind of really knew this is going to be like the no COVID episode, and now we're talking about how it's the no COVID episode. You, you say that, but I want to actually take this. I want to I want to spin COVID in a positive light, which is you and I both work jobs where we can never go to community board meetings. And we have missed some real crazy ones um, about bike lanes and all sorts of other bullshit, to be honest. Right. Like bike lanes are not causing gentrification. Like get your head out of your ass if that's what you believe. Um, but I think we should take this opportunity like community board meetings are remote right now. Mm. Like I, I feel really dumb that I've like been reading about them on Twitter and seen the zoom links and been like, 
I don't want to go to this, which, which I think speaks to Grant's point that like any rational person would not want to go to a community board meeting because they are a nightmare. Um, but we should, we should take this opportunity and act like 70 year old car owning white men who have lived in Brooklyn, you know, since they bought this house for $50,000 in the sixties and are like, I don't understand why children can't own real estate. Um, and we should go. Yeah, we should not act like that, but we, we should go and we should try to be allies and advocates for people who, uh, you know, who can benefit from really good urban planning. We can all benefit from urban planning, but there are some folks in particular who can benefit even more from good urban planning. And so uh, we should absolutely do that. And I'm going to put it on you, Adam, to find out when the next meeting is and to shoot me a calendar invite and I will accept it. All right. That sounds, uh, that sounds pretty reasonable to me. Uh, I think we're a community board too, but I'll, I'll look into that and, uh, let's, uh, let's do it. All right. Do, let's, uh, let's do, do it. Any, uh, exciting evening or tomorrow plans or, or should we let our listeners do I think, you know, let's let our listeners go because honestly, I have no exciting plans. Just working and quarantining. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing what you think is the, uh, the after music. Mm-hmm. Here we go. This land is your land and this land is my land from the California to the New York Island the redwood forest to the Gulf Stream waters. This land was made for you and me. This land is Corona Pod. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay healthy. That endless skyway saw below me that golden valley. This land was made. Corona Pod is brought to you by Momo the Cat. Follow her at Momo underscore is underscore a underscore cat. Oh, man, Adam, I can barely keep a straight face through that. I rolled and I followed my foot.